Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each Monday morning we join the Liquid Markets Group's market meeting to get the latest update across all traded markets. Good morning and welcome to Monday the 26th of October. And whilst this is a podcast to discuss the global financial markets, we can't ignore the big weekend of sport in Australia with two of the nation's largest sporting codes having their grand finals and congratulations to all the Richmond Tigers and Melbourne Storm supporters. And of course, today also marks now officially the start of the cricket season. So there you go. It's a welcome relief to a year heavily impacted by COVID-19. And unfortunately, as we look offshore, large parts of the world are now experiencing new outbreaks. Last week, we reported parts of Asia and Europe. And now, of course, the US has joined in with a third wave. And all this with the US election just seven days away. Welcome to QPod's Market Moments podcast, Stuart Simmons, our Head of Currency Management. Stu, let's get over the big ticket out of the way first. Did the right teams win over the weekend? I'd say so, Craig, but not, none of my teams were in the finals, so uh, I just had to watch on, but they were great events over the weekend. Excellent, mate. And recently you provided us with a synopsis of the key downside risks the financial markets were facing. Can you briefly uh, highlight the key themes that you identified in that last update? Yeah, sure, Craig. Um, You know, firstly, you mentioned one, and that is the ongoing surge in COVID infections. And we're at new records on a global basis, um, new records in Europe in particular, well, well, well above uh, the the first wave there. Um, And also experiencing new daily records in the US for their third wave. Uh, So that remains a a pretty significant risk, particularly the the impact that that has on economic momentum. Along with that, there's uncertainty associated with the US election uh, and also the binary risks associated with the UK and European Union post-transition trade negotiations. Stu, got to put you on the spot here. Can you see Biden losing? You know, some of the polls uh, in some of the states are narrowing, some of those key states. And there's 10 states in particular that I'm watching that the Republicans won in 2016. Of those 10, five are favoured to go the way of Biden and five are favoured to remain with Trump. You know, seven of those 10 polls are narrowing in favour of Trump or or expanding his lead in those states where he has a lead. It does appear to be narrowing uh, on a national basis, but Biden is still uh, a clear favourite. But with some of the elections and, and referendums we've had in recent years, you can't rule out a surprise. Now, there's also some good reasons for the inverse argument, Stu. So what are the three durable upside risks to risk assets that you've been identifying? For this, I want to focus um, mainly on the efforts of governments and central banks to underwrite financial and economic conditions. Uh, But rather than focus on the scale of stimulus or or specific measures, you know, which are unprecedented in a peacetime environment, I really want to focus on the change in philosophies that are accompanying those policy decisions. Uh, In short, there's been a lot of taboos that have been dispensed with in the essential response to what they perceive as something akin to a natural disaster. So in terms of those three different, I guess, philosophical changes, um, firstly, you've got the level of coordination between central banks and governments in addressing the crisis with you know, mainly developed market central banks in particular, ensuring that borrowing costs remain contained while national deficits balloon. Uh, secondly, I think you want to consider the ambivalence from central banks to the 
policy transmission mechanism arguably being more effective in driving financial assets higher uh, rather than that impact on the real economy. So financial stability risks have been more subordinated than ever. And there appears to be little prospect of central bankers hesitating on policy due to concerns over equity valuations. And relatedly, the RBA now consider that financial stability risks will be reduced by further easing through the strengthening of household balance sheets. And we also now have the RBA articulating that policy easing will gain more traction during an upturn, which is a departure from the traditional view that policy would be normalised as economic conditions themselves normalise. And we even have the international monetary equivalent of the responsible adult, which is the IMF, expressing that governments need not plan for future austerity, which is certainly a backflip on that post-GFC environment. So in short, Craig, an extremely accommodative policy stance is here to stay with exceptional liquidity and monetary support remaining the strongest tailwind over the foreseeable future. And Stu, as you look out uh, for our institutional investors, uh, can they take even more comfort from the outlook deep into 2021? Uh, yeah, of course. You know, the more forward-looking an investor is, the more comfort they can take, I think, because if you look deep into 2021, perhaps you've got an environment there with a workable vaccine or vaccines. It's accompanied by an easing, a substantial easing of the public health crisis, a powerful economic recovery, a powerful boost to corporate earnings, and still an environment which remains accompanied by extremely accommodative policy as labour markets move back towards full employment at a more glacial pace. And Stu, any other primary sources behind these themes you've identified that you want to highlight? You know, you can... You can look at other short-term influences on markets, things that we've talked about in the past. Uh, perhaps positioning is something that's fairly relevant there now because you still don't have that sense that investors are fully positioning risk assets. And, you know, in terms of those risks that we discussed earlier, I think you know that's certainly one thing that investors should also focus on into 2021 just keep an eye on how institutional investors are positioned because that could be a bit of a guide as to when uh, that path of least resistance might end up turning lower. And Stu, you know, maybe a quick yes, no answer here. Is the major swing factor here the vaccine? Yes, it's massive. That's your inflection point. Excellent. Thank you, Stuart Simmons, for that macro update. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela, and this is QIC's Market Moments podcast. Welcome, Andrew Whitaker, our Senior Portfolio Manager for Fixed Income. Andrew, we're going to cover that US $2 trillion fiscal stimulus discussions that are currently in play. In the last few weeks, the financial market volatility has been largely influenced by these fiscal stimulus headlines. After the passing of the CARES Act and the partisan support in March, what's prevented Congress this time around on agreeing on this additional package? Yeah, good morning, Craig. Um, I guess that's the question on everyone's lips, aside from whether or not Melania Trump has a body double. It's why after months of negotiations, haven't both sides of Congress been able to agree on a deal? And with around three quarters of the American public survey suggesting that um, they want a new, they want a deal and um, to mitigate, continue to mitigate the economic damage associated with this pandemic. And at a time when 
the federal government can continue to borrow money at almost negligible rates, public opinion and economic pragmatism would suggest that we should have another stimulus deal done by now. But there's really two sticking points. The first one is around unemployment benefits. Um, so the Democrats want to really keep it at $600 per week, and they're getting a lot of pressure from their supporters to hold the line at $600 per week. Uh, on the other hand, the Republicans are getting a lot of pressure from business groups and their conservative supporter base to end the benefit entirely or to reduce it um, to around $400 per week. Um, so the argument being that it's keeping a lot of people from going back to work and people are sitting around at home and getting paid a lot of money to do nothing. Excellent, mate. And so when you look at this, let's break that down a bit further. With the stimulus stance being raised by the Republicans being influenced by business, what is their proposal uh, you know, against the, against the Democrats in this situation? Yeah, so the Republicans, uh, um, Trump recently came back to the table in the last couple of weeks with a package of around $1.8 trillion. So that bit offer between Republicans and Democrats is narrowing somewhat. And But really it comes down to party ideology here. And the ideology from the Republican standpoint is around fiscal conservatism. So their ideology is that fiscal conservatism um, or fiscal spending is really a good idea or a good solution to an economic problem. But we can't make mention of that without um, alluding to the polls. And as Stu um, mentioned earlier, um, it's odds on for a Biden victory. So market betting markets have a Biden victory at around 63%. And many Senate Republicans and House Republicans are beginning to, to think, what happens to the Republican Party if Trump loses? What does the Republican Party look like if under um, under a new regime? And the answer to that question may be, it may look even more fiscally conservative than it does now. So they're starting to run um, run the political calculus and wondering, you know, if they have to run in the 2020, 2024, sorry, presidential primaries in a crowded um, primary race, um, they're going to have to have impeccable fiscal credentials. And so really now in the Republic, from a Republican Party perspective, it's all about the politics of self-interest and looking through the this election into the next one. Oh, there you go. And if it's down to ideology and it also got this you know, support at the moment for Biden, what is the alternative now being proposed by the Democrats, Andrew? Yeah, so the Democrats they want um they want more money. They want you know stimulus in the order of 2.2 trillion dollars. And you know really what it comes down to is you know they're getting some pressure for internally from within parts of their party saying, well you know why don't you just come down to that 400 dollars per week in unemployment benefits? You know a rational person would take the money. You can always take the money now and ask for money later on. But they're running their own political calculations and those machinations at the moment they're running are is that you know. If, hey, what happens if Trump loses? What happens if Joe Biden gets in? Well, if Joe Biden gets in, then potentially we can get more money or a better deal later on. That would mean more money for state and local governments, more money for unemployment benefits, and also more money to help small businesses. But there's one other calculation in this as well, and that's they believe that Trump really needs this deal more than they do. So they're running the political calculation that you know Trump can come to them on their terms. So interesting. So we're only half a trillion out, Andrew. Um, but are there any implications of an impasse heading into the US election? Yeah. So, I mean, the election's on November 3rd. So we're eight days away from um, the US election. But the new US president won't be sworn in until January 20th. So there's a lot of concern that, you know, if we're in a lame duck government, if, if we're still continue to remain at an impasse, then, you know, President Trump, if he's still in power or, or in a lame duck government, would lose concern about providing additional federal help for people during that period of time. Now, if we overlay that with what Stu spoke about earlier in terms of the uptick in coronavirus cases, you know, we're entering winter in the US and there's this kind of um, view from leading 
um, medical experts that, you know, with winter approaching, people spending um, more time in close proximity that we may get, you know, this uptick, continue to get this uptick in um, in um, coronavirus cases. And that at a time when, you know, ability to provide more fiscal stimulus to the American people is stymied, then that could be, you know, continued to weigh on economic growth. And Andrew, what's your view on the probability of a deal getting done before the US election in, in seven to eight days time? Yeah, well, I think you just nailed it there, Craig. I think with eight days until the election, you know, it's looking less and less likely. Um, if a deal is struck, Trump would have to support it. Um, the House Democrats would have to vote and pass the bill. And then Senate Majority uh, Leader Mitch McConnell would have to free up Senate time to um, to pass the bill. And around half of his caucus opposes this bill. And that time in the Senate's currently being consumed by the appointment of a new Supreme Court justice. So it's looking less and less likely. But as always, the wild card is Trump. And um, with eight days until the election, he needs a political capital to try and close um, the gap in the polls. And and he's scared of looking weak in the eyes of the stock market if he can't get a deal over the line. So he's got this difficult needle to thread where he needs to close the gap in the polls. But the Senate, many sorry, Senate Republicans uh, are not on board with this idea of spending even more money to make an agreement. So I love the fact that financial markets outcome over the next few weeks, Andrew, is dependent on Trump's decision making. You did introduce that then. So what's the likely outcome, in your opinion, for the markets if that agreement isn't reached? Yeah, I think um, I think either way, Craig, we're going to see this increased shorter term volatility within financial markets. Um, but our view is ultimately that um, a deal gets done. And and whilst we may have to wait for a period of time um, over the medium term, that should be good, good for uh, risky assets. And we're starting to see this market become more comfortable with a Biden victory. And you know, what we're starting to see is central banks, you know, have really thrown the baton out of fiscal policy. And if that fiscal policy continues to um, so, you know, gain traction and the deal get, does eventually get done, um, fiscal policy operating in tandem with monetary policy should really be good for inflation expectations. It should really be good for things like credit and spread product as yields begin to get crowded out and, and you know, that, that those both of those levers continue to operate in tandem. Thank you, Andrew Whitaker, for the update on the US fiscal stimulus package. You're listening to Craig Balanswell and this is QIC's Market Moments podcast. Good morning to Phil Mile, our Director for Credit Portfolio Management and Research. Phil, last week we had a yet another first in the financial markets with that inaugural shore program in the in the European markets. Before we get into the market's reaction, what is this indication? Hi, Craig. Uh, yeah, so the EU issued a um, a remarkably a remarkable deal. It was a seventeen billion dollar raising that they printed across ten uh, year and. 20-year tranches. Um, basically, it's a social bond. It's the first EU social bond, uh, and it's to fund, I guess, their pandemic relief um, program. So th- there will be more to come, um, but that's basically the essence of it, to fund social projects that support uh, the EU's recovery. Well, an important bond there, Phil. Um, so how did the market react to the re- to the issue? Uh, it was quite amazing. Um, phenomenal, really. So as I said, they printed $17 billion, which is a, a massive deal in itself for a supranational, I think the largest supranational ever. Um, the market appetite, the order book grew to $233 billion, so close to 14 times oversubscribed uh, in total. And, and that's been reflected in the secondary market. So as an example, uh, the 10-year tranche priced at three basis points over mid-swaps. Uh, that quickly traded to um, seven inside swap on the break. Um, but according to Bloomberg now, it, it's continued the rally to 19 basis points inside swap. So a very strong reception from the market. And that's really positive from two perspectives. One, 
um, that, as I said, there will be further issuance under this program and from the Euro Eurozone um, to help fund pandemic relief projects. And as well, I guess the as we've seen, the um, investor appetite for sustainable investments was certainly, I think, a um, a catalyst as well for the level of appetite in this bond. So, Phil, you just mentioned then the market's appetite for that sort of social sort of bond through that ESG programs. But are investors being rewarded with an attractive yield justify that demand imbalance? Well, I think it's it's kind of a matter of supply and demand here, Craig. So um, th- there's not a strong, I guess, secondary curve to really price this up. So it's about a bit of price discovery. And and I mean, if you're participated in this bond, then you've been rewarded handsomely given the performance. So I, I think what it highlights, and Mareka made this point on a an internal discussion last week, is that you might start to see a premium for more brown assets that are, that aren't sustainable and um that, that's kind of what's emerging here i think in the past we've had we've seen small um i guess discounts emerge in terms of lower spreads versus secondary curves for green bonds and and that seems to be mounting with recent deals and similarly here i think new south wales treasury corporation issued a green bond here last week as well at attractive levels so I think investors, it seems, are, are more are willing to take a bit of a discount to be in sustainable investments, but they're still performing well after the initial issue. Fantastic. Phil, let's jump across the Atlantic because we recently had that US bank earnings update from you uh, last week. What's the latest highlight you observed from the latest earnings reporting? Oh, sure, Craig. So we are just over a quarter of the way through uh, the S&P 500 earnings season. So I think it's about 27% with 136 of the S&P 500 having reported uh, so far. And at a high level, just recall, so consensus at the outset of this earnings season was for a year-on-year fall in Q3 earnings of just around 21%. Um, so that's a, that outcome would be a better outcome than Q2. So the June quarter is clearly the trough for earnings and and June earnings fell year on year by just over 30%. Um, In terms of where this season's going with that um, just over a quarter of the way through, the beat-miss ratio is basically at record levels. So 84% of companies are beating street estimates on earnings and and the aggregate beat on earnings is for an 18% above the estimate. So it's a strong season against consensus. what that means, I guess, for the actual growth on a blended basis, and this um, number is something that FactSet provides. So blended being the um, the aggregate of companies that have reported so far and consensus estimates for the rest of this, the companies that haven't reported. So that's sitting at about um, minus 16.5% um, versus the third quarter of last year. So still a fall in earnings as expected. Um, and and that's understandable given we're coming out of COVID, but it's certainly an improvement on the June quarter. And, and interestingly, on the outlook side of things, we're still um, below average in a number of companies that are providing guidance. Um, but through this reporting season so far, 69 companies have provided, so around half have, have provided profit guidance for the full year. And um, two thirds of those are positive guidance. So you're actually seeing companies being, I guess, more optimistic about the outlook as we come out of COVID. And then thinking ahead for this week, um, this week's a particularly, I guess we start to see the full ramp up of corporate earnings. Uh, so we have the mega cap stocks on Thursday. So it's mega cap Thursday, essentially with um, four of the, 
uh, I guess, the big tech stocks, Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook all reporting. Uh, we have some bellwether uh, names as well in Caterpillar on Tuesday, GE on Wednesday. Um, so a really big week for earnings here. And we'd, we'd expect, I think, that to see a continuation of this strong beat miss climate. Thank you, Phil, for that European and US update. Thank you to the Liquid Markets Group for the Financial Markets Update. I'm Craig Valenzuela for QIC's QPod Market Moments podcast and have a super week ahead.